Hey, hey, people of Earth, it's time to enter the spoilerverse via our secret portal at the exclusive Arctic Club in beautiful downtown Seattle with our hosts, John and Kenrick and Casey. Welcome to Spoiler Country. Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on spoilerverse.com. But if you want to keep up with our latest episodes, you should bring out your smartphone, get into your favorite podcatcher, find Spoiler Country, and hit subscribe. Then you'll get all our new stuff. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that in two ways. You can call us and leave us a voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, 707-656-2080. Or you can shoot us an email at spoilercountry at gmail.com. Welcome back to Spoiler Country. I'm Ken Cregan. That's Mr. Horsley. And today on the show, well, it's different flavors of toothpaste, isn't it? Uh, Kenrick, we, we, we forgot something. Yeah, Colgate and Sensodyne yeah, no, and no, 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 Crest. Not that. Not that. I mean, I'm, I, look, I, I think you it's very important. Mouthwash? I, I mean, yes, mouthwashes are great too, but and you should also floss. I think it's really good to talk about dental hygiene. However, we forgot that Casey and Gary Cohn basically did a whole nother episode because they had some trouble in the middle, and we have another hour and 20 minutes of them talking we never released. Who's Casey? Casey, man on the street. Casey Allen. Oh, Casey T. Allen. Casey, yeah, Casey Tickle Monster Allen. Casey T. Allen. <laughs> Got it. Well, shoot. Let's put I – I broke out all these toothpaste just to give us a fair a, – a fair – Review of we've all the toothpaste on the daily market. And yeah, I know. I know. This screws me up, Johnny. Well, at least your teeth are clean, okay? All right. Well, let's sit back and listen to Gary and Casey in your own words. Hey, I'm very sorry about that, man. Okay. Um, it okay. seems like the tin can and string that we had set up um, broke, but uh, we got some bubble gum and some more string and a few kites and we got it together and it's good. So we're, we're actually okay. on the good recorder now. Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> so what was, what was the last thing I was saying to you? So the last thing you were saying, you, you were telling me about um, the, how fulfilling it is to be a teacher. And uh, I kind of went into how my wife, uh, when she gets home in the evening, she will um, she'll be working on school stuff till well after 6 p.m. And then she can go and be a mommy and, you know, be a wife and all that other stuff. But I mean, it's a hard job. Mm -hmm. It definitely is. So So I think what I'm saying next was that, uh, in some ways, it was harder. It, it's been harder to transition back from being really a teacher to a writer. And I've been having some challenges with it. It's, it's um, been taking um, some, some focus issues. Finding, finding my way to being a teacher again is uh, not the easiest thing in the world. So uh, being a writer again, rather. So yeah, because it seems like happen. teaching, you kind of have a regimented lifestyle in a way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
and and it's structure and and you've got to be on because you have to deliver and if you don't deliver you fail at it and it's every day you have to be there in front of the first class at eight o'clock and it's showtime it's i remember the, the movie all that jazz where where Scheider plays bob fossey and his life is absolutely coming apart and he's having battles with alcohol his ex-wife and his girlfriend and 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 he's probably got a heart attack coming but every night he sits in front of the makeup mirror and gives himself jazz hands and says showtime and he goes out and puts on the show and that's what you've got to do as a teacher too as a writer um, particularly if you don't have actual paying deadlines and you're writing on spec, you know, you're, you're writing things that you're then going to shop around. It's not the same pressure. And particularly since I retired with a small pension and social security, I have my basic nut, you know, I don't have extra, which is one of the reasons why I continue to work. And I, I arrange that for myself. I, I know myself and I know that, when I've got no pressures, I I revert to my nine-year-old kid self who just wanted to stay in his room and read comic books and play with toys. Yeah. <laughs> so, 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 so I've created a life that has always at least some small pressures to to do something else, some external motivation. But I also know that if I did absolutely nothing, I'd still make the rent and feed myself and pay my bills. And that makes it even harder to find that inner drive to, I've got all these things I want to do. I've got all these ideas. I've got people I want to work with. How do I find a pattern that allows me to actually do this stuff? And that's been hard. I hear you. Yeah. So as, as a writer, like what, what's your biggest inspiration been lately? Um, a new friend. Really? Who is, yeah, a, a friend I met at a comic book convention in D.C. last year, who is a self-publisher. She's, she writes science fiction novels, and she's very good, and she's got a great work ethic. She's got <clears throat> a family. I'm 34 years old. She's got five-year-old and a seven-year-old, um, but she still finds the regular pattern to write her work and and produce it. And she's got four or five novels done, and she's doing puzzle books, and she's always got something going. And just by becoming, first we met, we had we went out to dinner with a few people, we had a drink, we talked, and ever since we've stayed in touch online. Um, saw each other at another convention a few months ago. But that friendship has has been kind of inspiring because I've seen how she's able to do it, and it's internal. It's an internal drive, and that's that's kind of inspiring. Has that has that kind of driven you a little bit? Just I think kind so. of put a little yeah. bit of fire under your seat. Yeah, I feel a little bit competitive too. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, that's awesome. That's competitive people sometimes competition gets a, a bad rap. Because there, there's like a negative competition sometimes where, where you can be competitive, but also take it to the extreme and be a jerk. But uh, right. competition gets stuff done. 
you can have a friendly competitiveness. You can have a yes. friend who who pushes you by example to push yourself, and that's that's competitive. You know, if, if she can do it, well, I want to show her that I can do it too. There, there's a um, a, a writer friend that I have that I'm, uh, I see what they're doing, and I'm like, I need to, I need that fire. I'm gonna have that fire. I need to get there. So uh, I, I try to write. Um, when I'm not making winter tubes, I, I try to write comics. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, it, I, I also have to be a dad and all this other stuff. And uh, lately, I have to replace carpet, which is not within anything I should be doing. <laughs> I have no idea what I'm doing. But the crew's coming tomorrow, so that's good. I don't have to worry about it anymore after tomorrow. But um, I was I was watching a, <laughs> a little snippet of an interview with Joyce Carol Oates. Um, I don't know if you know who she is. Um, great oh, yeah. American writer. Um, I, I got a little story about her in a minute, too. But she's saying the greatest impediment to writers is distractions. People wanting you to do things and taking your time. And I believe it. My my story of Joyce Carol it's, is is really simple. Um, the the guy who arranged for my master's program, Bowling Green, was a gentleman named R. Glenn Wright, who um, he was responsible for many things. He was my my mentor in a lot of ways. He was responsible for bringing the Clarion Science Fiction Writers Workshop to Michigan State when it lost its home at Cla- in Clarion, Pennsylvania. He was responsible for me being in the first group of Clarion students. Um, I don't know if you know about Clarion, but it's a very, very successful science fiction. Oh, yes, writing. Yeah, it's a writing program, right? Yeah, and our teachers were people like Theodore Sturgeon, Damon Knight, Kate Wilhelm, um, Harlan Ellison, and there were only 20 of us. So we had, and, and they'd come and stay with us for a week apiece. So it was very, very intimate, very, very, very close. And they had a lot to do with me learning how to be a writer. And it was Professor Glenn Wright's doing. And then two years later, when Dan was a student at Clarion, I was Glenn's assistant. So he was a very big force in my life. And he was a very bohemian kind of guy. And sometimes if you had nothing else to do, you'd go, um, and he had dozens of students who, who did this. You'd drop in at Glenn's place and just show up at his door. And he'd almost always welcome you unless he was off to do something hand you a drink. Um, and so one afternoon I showed up at Glenn's door and he welcomed me as he usually did. And there's this birdie looking young woman sitting on, on his sofa with a cocktail in his, her hand, who he's been having a conversation with. And he said, well, of course, you know, Joyce Carol Oates, right? And I turned into Ralph Crampton. Because this is Joyce Carol Oates. This is this is the woman who who wrote uh, um, 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 "Where Are You Going? Where Have You Been?" Um, um, so all all these great things and this Philip Roth and John Updike level American writer. You know, she was in the in in 1973 or four when I I encountered her there. She was if you'd named the the ten greatest living American fiction writers, she would have been in anybody's list. And, you know, really? It just kind of, she was doing the guest 
lecture thing at Michigan State, and of course, Glenn knew her because he knew everybody. And there she was sitting on the sofa. So I had to drink with Joyce Carol Oates. That's amazing. I, yeah, I was talking. I was talking to somebody the other day. You, you mentioned Harlan Ellison, and uh, he scares. He seems like he would scare the hell out of me. And uh, it, it was a um, uh, a writer that uh, was kind of kind of friends with him, and he was like, "No, mm-hmm. he was the nicest guy ever. He seems so intense, though." Well, every was. time I've seen an interview with him, Carlin was was a he had butted heads. I was a twenty one year old asshole. He was a forty one year old asshole. So <laughs> wow, he butted heads, <laughs> and you know the. the the, the old gunfighter syndrome, and and he he would rise to any challenge, um, whether and and create many of them. But he was also very sweet and capable of great great friendships and and great generosity. But uh, yeah, I, I had my my Harlan interaction. <laughs> <laughs> he seemed like he um, might have had but, an, a little bit of a Napoleon complex, but I mean. Um, immensely talented. Yeah, I did try to analyze him. He was, he was uh, (laughs) what he was, but, but I I always had this fantasy though, speaking of great, the the 10 greatest second half of the 20th century American writers. And I don't know if it ever happened, but I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in a room where both Harlan Ellison and Norman Mallor were holding court. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> that would have, I, 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 there was great potential for explosion there, and it would have been hilarious to watch. But uh, never, never saw that. Didn't happen, I, as far as I know. There's a great um, piece of journalistic writing that was in all the college textbooks for a long time called "Frank Sinatra Has a Cold" by. Jacob. Oh, I've read that. Yes, it was fantastic. And. And there's a moment where Frank Sinatra is shooting pool someplace and not feeling well and very irritable. And there's this loudmouth young new screenwriter in the room, and he and this guy almost come to blows. And of course, it's Harlan. So, <laughs> 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 what can I tell you? I, I, um, Harlan was a great teacher, and and uh, I learned a lot from him. Um, we had um, our interactions. I, by no means would I ever say he was a friend of mine or I was a friend of his, but you know, we we were on each other's radar, and that's that's unusual. You know, people when I, I used to tell people I was in comics, they would ask me the same question: Do you know Stan Lee? And my answer was always, "That's not a relevant question. The question is, does he know me?" I've been in the same room with him. I probably shook his hand. I've talked to him, but he doesn't know me. So it doesn't matter, you know? And, and with Harlan, it'd be the same question. Do you know Harlan Ellison? Most people, if they're being, if they were being honest, um, they hadn't captured him, but he didn't know them. I knew Harlan. He knew me. So, uh, so I, I was on his radar. So that's, uh, that (laughs) is, um, that's some credentials right there. Uh, no, it's not. He was my teacher, and I learned a lot from him. And uh, and we rubbed each other wrong a little bit, and then we made up, and then we rubbed each other wrong a little bit. And otherwise, I wasn't important in his life. He wasn't important in mine. 
I hear you. So what, when, in regards to the comics, um, you know, you, you started with, uh, with your, your buddy, Dan Mishkin and got into comp. Was anybody really kind of there to help usher you in? Did anybody kind of put you under their wing as, as y'all were, oh, yeah. um, everybody, it was, um, DC in the early eighties was, was a school and the teachers, who I consider my mentors were Len Wein, who taught me an incredible amount. Um, Dick Giordano, who taught me an incredible amount. Joe Orlando. Um, Ross Andrew didn't teach me an incredible lot, but he was a lovely, lovely man as an editor. And the reason he didn't teach me a lot was because he was too easygoing. And whatever I did, he thought was wonderful. And and a, a tougher editor would have looked at the same things and probably not thought they were quite so wonderful. But um, those three in particular, um, I would go into one with a, a bunch of plot ideas for stories from the mystery magazines. Dan and I had spent, would spend an evening on the phone. He was in Michigan. I was in, in Brooklyn and I have a pad and write down the things that we came up with. And then I would type up, uh, half a dozen um, story ideas. And then I go into Len and I give him all of them and he'd sit there and read, nah, I don't like this. Nah. And he'd look at one and he'd say, yeah, this is okay. Um, how many pages do you need to write this? And I'd say, we can do that story in eight pages. We can do an eight-page script for that story. And he'd say, great, give it to me in five. <laughs> and then I'd... And there was really no bargaining. Maybe I'd get six, but usually if he said, give it to me in five, he had a good enough sense to know that this is a five page story, which was what he was really saying is no fat, you know, just oh, yeah. don't put, don't whatever would be fat or padding in the story, cut this thing down to the bone. And that was something that I don't think writers now learn because they don't have that, that rigor of, you got to do it. This book needs a three-page story. I've got everything for inventory except I've got three pages that's, that doesn't have anything filled. Can you give me a three-page story? Sure. Can you give it to me tomorrow? Sure. <laughs> and and, <laughs> and, um, and that's what we have to do. So, and that's an art. That There is an art to learning what to cut and, and how to best put onto the page what needs to be seen, what needs to be read and knowing what is just, you know, j- just that is just fat. So uh, yeah. I, I run a group called the comic jam and um, we do one page comic stories based on a theme that everybody votes on. It's a way for us to get to know artists and writers, but it's also a good tool to kind of learn how to tell a story under uh you know w- with that type of restriction because uh y- you can you can keep droning on and on and on like i'm like i'm doing now um and uh the story will suffer you if you don't cut that fat out so um that that's a hard road to hoe for some people and uh it, it's it's really amazing what what you can learn how to do in that little amount of pages. I see that you, you did a lot of backup stories at DC. 
um, yeah. specifically in the uh, Warlord comic, which, oh my God, I love Warlord. I um, When I was a kid, I got a ton, uh, almost a full run of Warlord, and um, it was during a really rough time in my personal life. And uh, my, I had an uncle that was just like, you know what? I'm going to get this kid some comics. And I got that and a bunch of Jonah Hex, which I see that you also did some comics for. So I probably have some Jonah Hex and some Warlords with your stories in it. Uh, did did you enjoy writing those titles? Here's here's what we did in Warlord. Um, we and then me. Um, by the way, it's, as far as producing a story within a certain length, here's the formula. Um, you want your character. A character has got to be somebody who's got a problem. The main character is the person in the story with the biggest problem. Um, the character tries to solve the problem. Things get worse. The character tries to solve the problem again and either succeeds, fails, or something comes out of left field and changes the whole situation. Um, something Julie Schwartz ta- taught me is... Uh, a story's got to have a TikTok. He threw a script back at me. How dare you bring me a story without a TikTok? It's, what's TikTok? TikTok, TikTok. Clock is ticking. Time's running out. The bomb under the table isn't going off next week. It's going off in three minutes. Sense of urgency. So I can so, be writing notes right now. Oh, okay. But you, you've got this. <laughs> you know, you, yeah. Um, <laughs> you got the recording. But oh, yeah. The formula, the formula for story is. Um, the most basic story, you've got to write a one-page story or a two-page or a three-page situation, complication, resolution, right? And if it's yes, a longer sir. story, you can have another complication or several complications. But that's the formula, situation, complication, resolution. Um, first act, second act, third act. And you can expand or contract that formula as much as you need to, but it needs all those things. So it is, is it any different like when, when you're writing for prose? Because you've done some prose writing and uh, writing for comics. Uh, does that formula change any or is that just basic the sort of composition? The formula doesn't change, but the task sure does. And one of the reasons you like writing comics is that it's so easy compared to writing prose. Because all the heavy lifting is done by the artist. Oh yeah, you write you write a plot. Um, my favorite, my probably my favorite and most exasperating artist to work with is Paris Paris Collins, um, and he and I are coming up on a forty year friendship at this point. Um, I think we've, I think we just passed it actually. I think we're we're at forty years. Oh wow! But but my example is I'm writing a plot for Paris, who like Ernie Cologne and like Ron Randall and. All the artists I've really liked to work with is a hugely inventive guy who throws in lots of stuff you weren't expecting and basically riffs off your plot. So you don't want to give them a really detailed Alan Moore kind of plot because that stifles them. They're very creative. They're going to, they're going to do things that I'm going to have to respond to if we're working plot script. So in my plot, I'll, I'll write The Apocalypse Comes, two-page spread. And now poor Paris has to spend the next three days, <laughs> uh, four days, or however long it is, um, visualizing the apocalypse. If I have 
any particular things I want happening in it, I might give each of those a line too. But at the most, I'm going to write a paragraph or so, because again, I'm not Alan Moore. I'm not going to write 15 pages describing everything that needs to be in this two-page spread. And and the, the artist is going to do all the heavy lifting. If I'm writing prose, that becomes my task. What I'm finding, um, because I've started writing more prose than I, I used to. I, I wrote three Hardy Boys novels and two Nancy Drew novels because that was a gig that came up at one point when I was in the early 90s. And that formula was give, it, give them exactly what they want, better than they expected, and write on time. And I guess I, I satisfied them because they kept asking me to do more. And I have a 10,000-page, 10, 10,000-word 10, short story in a cat woman anthology that was published around then, too. I've, I've done a fair amount of prose. Um, and I was originally taught as a prose writer, not a comics writer. But I got lazy because comics writing is, will do that for you. But the problem with comics writing is that here is a favorite formulation of mine. Artists can fake writing better than writers can fake art. So there are artists like Frank Miller, um, Billy Tucci now, not when we met, but now, who can do the whole job really well. They are very good writers and great artists. But most of the people who have been artists who have also tried to write are really just playing the tropes because they're not really concerned with the intricacies of story. They're concerned with the visuals. And they're Early not image. really right. <laughs> Say again? Early image comics. Say again? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, those guys could do comics and, and fake stories because the art would cover it up. I can't do anything that looks like an anywhere near professional level art job. I can't fake that. So I'm utterly dependent on an artist. And artists are squirrely beasts and and even even if you've got something that's great and an artist loves what you've got because their work is so labor intensive they really do need to be paid up front oh yeah and they're going to go where the, they're going to go where the paying job is so what i started to find when i've come back in is that all these great ideas that i've had for comics um i've talked to some terrific artists and they've yeah, I really want to do that. When push came to shove, they couldn't. So I'm looking at all these things. I've got a stack. I've got a, you know, I'm like an airport. I've got all the planes on a holding pattern, and and <laughs> and we're running late on landing them. And I'm looking at them and saying, yeah, this could be a novel. This could be a novel, and I could do it as a novel. And so I'm starting to figure out how to do that. So that's what I'm doing because comics projects are fun and, and I have hopes for some of them. Paris and I have been uh, very, very slowly moving toward a new devil miniseries. Oh, nice. Um, it, yeah, it's ours. And, and Paris kept sending me pictures of totally revised blue devil. And didn't, after a while, it wasn't looking anything like Blue Devil, except they had big horns. I finally said, you know, DC owns this character, and they have made no noises to us for a decade or more about doing anything with it. They don't want us. 
And this doesn't really look like Blue Devil. This is some New Devil. So we've been working on New Devil, which has the bounce of Blue Devil. It's but it's in um, it. It's just exactly like Blue Devil, but totally different. It's got awesome. no story connection or or similarity to Blue Devil, but it's got all the feel and all the bounce. So we've been working on that, but you know, that was seven years ago, <laughs> and. <laughs> Um, I, I, I kind of, we, we kind of have a publisher who said, when you're ready, we'll publish it. And my plan is four issues to tell a complete story arc and, and set it all up. And, and then we're done unless there's some great reason to do more. And there's art for two, but the art for the second issue really needs a lot of revision. And the first issue is plotted. Um, it's dialogue. A lot of the art is done, uh, 28 pages, great stuff, but some of them are completely complete, and some of them are are barely stick figures. And very gradually, it starts to evolve. And when will it be ready? I have no idea. <clears throat> so if I was writing Blue Devil, New Devil the novel, um, it would be completely on me. But the joy of doing it is that it's something Paris and I are doing together, and it's it's an expression of our friendship as much as anything else. That's awesome. That's and do, do you mind talking a little bit about your, your writing with, with Dan Mishkin? Because that, that it always blows my mind how people handle the task of co-writing a book um, and who does what and how they handle each task. And I, it seems like you guys uh, really are a, a cohesive unit when it, when it comes to that. What, what was the origin of that, and how did that how come about? We were um, 30 years ago, 35 years ago. I don't know that we've tried it at all since then. So whatever whatever the magic was then, we'd have long conversations on the phone. Uh, one or the other of us would take a lot of notes, and whichever one of us, and we'd hash out things like when we're hashing out the world of Amethyst and the world of Blue Devil, we hammer out all the details. And, and then we had these brilliant artists. We had Ernie Cologne who contributed a lot to what Amethyst finally became. In Paris, who contributed a lot to what Blue Devil finally became. Um, on Barren Earth, I had Ron Randall who contributed a lot to what it finally became. Ron Randall is just and a fantastic then, dude. Anyway, just all around. He is. He is. So <clears throat> when we were ready, one of us, would write a plot. And if it was, if we're doing script, like when we were doing the, the, the anthology books or when we were doing our first scripts for superhero books, sometimes one of us would write the plot and the other would write the script. Sometimes one of us would write the plot and the script. And we were very dependent on the mail. So we had to be fast so that we could mail things back and forth. And I'd get Dan's plot and then I would run it through my typewriter. Or I'd get his script, and I would run it through my typewriter. He'd do the same thing. And then we'd get back on the phone. We'd talk about things if something wasn't right, or we'd come up with jokes together. And that's how we did it. Um, it's, it was, And it was with the technology of, of 1982. So yeah. phones and mail. <laughs> I, I can't imagine how much more cohesive and, and easy it would be on you guys to to do that now with, you know, Google docs and uh, stuff like that, where you can just drop the whole thing and 
into an online file and they could pick it up as you write it. But I also wonder if that might have um, changed the out the outcome and changed the output of what of what you did. Um, can we talk about Amethyst any? Because that that comic is it seems so much it seems so much more different than what was coming out at DC at the time. And I think people really kind of caught on to it and it's people are still talking about it today. And Amy reader is doing a terrific six issue miniseries. Yes. Yes. Um, and I would not have said that about the last attempt to redo Amethyst during the new 52. Uh, artwork was terrific. Um, it was Possibly a good story. From um, I, I glanced at the first issue, but it was nothing I wanted to read, and it certainly wasn't Amethyst. It was something that had the name Amethyst. What Amy's doing is Amethyst. Um, yeah, and I've been in touch. I've been in touch with her online, and and she's she's a fan, and it shows. She 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 likes what we did, and she wants to work from that. She doesn't want to reproduce it. She doesn't want to use, and and she shouldn't. It's forty years later. But she understands what we were up to. And so she's doing her own take on what we were doing rather than doing something that has very little connection. So Amethyst, when Dan and I were sitting in the Bowling Green offices, um, we had our teaching office had adjacent desks. There were six grad students in the office, and Dan and I were two of them. And when we were doing nothing and there were no students coming through, We'd brainstorm ideas. We'd talk about what should happen in comics. This is 1978, 77. And we started saying, you know, it's not much for girls. And he had just had a daughter. So it's not much for girls. Well, what do girls like? Um, What's what's common fantasy of girls? And in the process of the conversation, we came up with, you're secretly a magical princess from another realm. Yes. Right. That's, that's, that's kind of a common fantasy, a common fairy tale trope. Your parents aren't your parents. You're, you're really the people who have raised you. And so much of this showed up in Harry Potter too. Not because anybody was looking, um, she was looking at our stuff. It's because she was also plugged into the same zeitgeist. So your ordinary parents, are not really your parents. Your parents, your real parents were magical and special and they're dead. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it it even goes back to what is it? Great expectations. You had the benefactor that, uh, uh, he, he thinks is a, um, Pip thinks is, uh, you know, well, wildly successful, you know, businessman or whatever. And it turns out it's not that at all, but yeah, that, Mm -hmm desire to be greater than you know uh, just a common person i think right and at some point and puberty is the onset generally because fairy tales are tied into all of that subtext to all that freudian stuff um or that Jungian stuff um your magical origins are going to come back to get you and bring you back. And then you're going to be called on a mission and only you can do it. All that stuff, the hero journey. So that all flowed. And, and so that became one of the things that we had in mind and we called it the changeling because she's a changeling. 
And <clears throat> somewhere along the line, uh, and I think it was probably Dave Manick, because Dave Manick was the editor who sparked both Amethyst and, and Blue Devil. Um, somebody said to us, do you have something? Could it, is it kind of girly? And I said, yeah, we do. And <clears throat> and I told Dan about it, and we're talking about it, and I don't remember if it happened in the course of a conversation or if he came up with this and called me, but he said, Amethyst, Princess of Gemworld. I said, holy shit, because that allows us to talk. It, it ties us into all the magical lore of gems, and it gives us, it gives us <clears throat> something that's more than just a, a generic fairy tale changeling. And so we started to run with that. And Bannock said, well, who do you want for an artist? And we're both big fans of the Grim Ghost. And it happened that the guy who drew the Grim Ghost was this guy named Ernie Cologne, who was starting to do some work for DC. And can we have him? He's great. So that's how that generated. And it was designed to be a 12-issue maxi-series that ended. And so we gave them a 12-issue maxi-series that ended. And <clears throat> somewhere in the process, they said, well, we need a, cro a Superman crossover, which is oh, <laughs> problematic because, because as far as we are concerned, Amethyst was not in the DC universe in the same way that Mo Moby Dick is not in the Sherlock Holmes universe. It, yeah, and it, it doesn't and, seem like it should be. In, in the DC universe, right. it, it's a, it's great as it is on its own. Right. The only connection to a DC universe was that she had a Wonder Woman poster on her, on her wall. But now they wanted Superman in the gem world. So we did a crossover and then we continued on and we were done, but they had a toy deal going on. And the company Kenner said, well, you've got to have a comic book. Otherwise, how can we do a toy? So they said, well, can you do a new series? So now we had to come up with the new series. And at that point, that coincided with my uh, whatever. Here's a Yiddish word for you, Mishigas. Um, my Mishigas in my early mid-30s. And Dan and I just weren't, the magic wasn't working. And we decided, well, let's each take one of the books. And I think we made the wrong choice because he got Blue Devil and I got Amethyst. And it seemed like the right choice at the time, but I think I think it probably would have been better the other way around. And I ran for 10 issues with Amethyst, and I had a sense of where I was going. And <clears throat> I was struggling with deadlines, and I got taken off the book. There's, there's a story to that, but I got taken off the book, and it got handed to other people who have told me that they love Amethyst, and I believe that they love Amethyst, but what they were doing was not Amethyst as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And then it got integrated into the DC Universe, and she became a Lord of Chaos or whatever. Yeah. And and somebody said, well, what if Gen World is where Mordrew comes from? And all this stuff that, to my mind, has nothing to do with it. So, so as far as I'm concerned, the first 12 issues are are scripture and everything else is apocrypha with one exception. I, I didn't see what, what uh, Bendis did with, with a uh, new, new giant teenage people or whatever that book is. But, uh, <clears throat> but 
Um, um, Brianne Hart's nine minutes of Amethyst cartoons is perfection to me, even though it's very different from what we did. Um, it's not. And that nine minutes is, is a treasure. And now what Amy's doing seems really good. Um, with Bender stuff, I know he's a great writer and everybody loves him. I, I can't think of anything I've ever read of his, but I heard what his central idea was, which was that gem world invades Earth, and my immediate reaction was, well, that's totally ass backwards. Earth has nothing gem world wants. Um, yeah. And, and, and given what we know of who we are, um, it would be the other way around, right? It'd be Earth invades gem world. They've got gems and magic, you know? <laughs> so, so of course, um, we would invade them, not the other way around. But that's all I know about that. And I'm just not really interested. And that, that was my, my feeling about anything anybody did with Amethyst and Blue Devil was, yeah, okay, they got it. Bill Willingham, um, I read a couple of Bill Willingham Shadow Pack stories and of anybody who's ever touched Blue Devil, he's the only one who I think really got the character. Um, again, the DC machine—they sent him to hell. They killed everybody. They—they they made him this bleak, horrible, tragic character. That's not Blue Devil. Blue Devil's this bouncy, happy guy who beats up bad guys and says, "I'm not a superhero." Blue Devil. Blue Devil was not supposed to be a comic book with much on its mind. It was just supposed to be a romp. That, that's what I was about to say. That's the exact word I was about to say. It's a romp. It certainly is. Right. And so, we had Paris, that's what it was. And and once Paris was taken off the book, because he wasn't meeting deadlines, we went through six different artists and six issues, which was brutal. Um, Gil Kane did a pretty nice issue. Keith Giffen did two terrific issues. Um, and so on. Ernie did an issue. But at the end of the day, we ended up with an artist who was just competent and always met deadlines. And because he was not an action artist, he was a more of a comedy artist. We started again with our editor's <clears throat> direction, but we started, but also the necessity of the artist, we started to make it more jokey, jokey and less bouncy. And <clears throat> that became less and less of a great fight scenes comic with, with a lot of funny stuff and started to be a comic that's trying too hard to be funny. And, and, has art that just kind of lays there on the on the page. That's that's my story on Blue Devil and Amethyst. I hear you, and uh, I'm that, I'm happy that you're able to see stuff because they're your babies, and I'm happy that you're able to see the new Amethyst uh, uh, series and see somebody doing it right. <clears throat> Especially after yeah. F52 was a disaster all around. That was such a uh, they handled that thing awfully, um, mm -hmm. uh, but that's that's neither here nor there. <laughs> I think everybody yeah, got I had nothing uh, to do with it. got messed up around New Fifty Two. I had nothing to do with it. I think I saw a few dollars, and literally a few dollars, um, maybe tens, in royalties because they used my two characters, and I don't think I ever read a single. New 52 book. I, like I said, I looked at the first issue of Amethyst a little bit. And <clears throat> so it really wasn't on my radar. I hear you. So after um, 
after you did the the comics up up through the nineties, you went into teaching, and uh, now now you're retired from teaching and uh, just um, going back into writing. And um, are are you hoping to? Uh, are, do you have any projects like on the slate right now that are that are in production? Well, New Devil is creeping along. Um, <clears throat> Ray Felix and I, Ray, Ray was the art teacher in the high school I worked in. And when we learned that we were both comics guys, we said, let's make a comic book. And <clears throat> it took five years. We did, but we got issue number one of Nemesis, Daughter of Night. Um, and between the two of us, we've probably printed 400 copies and <clears throat> occasionally sell them at conventions and talk about doing a second issue one of these days. It was fun. It's nice. I like it. <clears throat> um, when I was writing for DC, they would publish, they would print tens of thousands of copies of what I wrote. And now that I do it on my own, I print tens of copies. Yeah. It, but uh, the whole model for, for sales and everything has, has changed drastically since, um, since the eighties, since the nineties. And, uh, especially when you're a self publisher, uh, and, mm -hmm. you know, selling them at cons and online, um, it's, uh, it's a big difference. Uh, do you enjoy going out to the cons? I know right now those are, um, uh, not really happening, but uh, hopefully we'll we'll be back to that. Uh, has that been an interesting um, thing for you, actually going out and meeting the fans? It is, and <clears throat> especially since most of them are are remembering me that that uh, <clears throat> hasn't existed for thirty years, thirty five years. So I get to remember him with them, <clears throat> and that's that's interesting interesting and entertaining. Um, and I sometimes see a book that I forgot I had anything to do with when somebody wants me to sign it. <laughs> uh, I get to, I get to talk to people. And as you can see, I like to do that and I get to tell stories. And sometimes I get to talk about writing and on panels with people who are far more successful than I am. Um, that's fun. I was on a panel last year with, J.M. DeMattis and I don't remember who else, but somebody else with a <clears throat> with with that level of of success. My my, I'd never met him before. He's a lovely guy. Um, my one connection with DeMattis is that Dan and I finished I Vampire. We wrote I think fourteen episodes of I Vampire, um, which when I look back at it, I don't think is all that good. But the Tom Sutton artwork was great. So. I enjoy doing that. Um, I have a lot of industry friends who I get to see at comic book conventions. And I try to keep it local and within like a hundred mile radius of Richmond. And I found a community in Richmond. Richmond has a couple of comics communities. It's got a more or less mainstream comic book convention community built around uh, the Richmond, the VA Comic Con series of small comic cons. A really nice guy named Brett Carreras produces, and then it's got <clears throat> the VCU, um, much more artsy kind of comics community, because VCU's got this great commercial uh, arts program. So 
the two the two communities don't talk to each other all that much. The VCU community is built around a guy named Tom DeHaven, who's a terrific writer, who was just retired. Um, and a guy named Chris Pitcher has a <clears throat> has a print house called Ad House, where he does really high end, good looking, um, has a lot on their minds graphic novels. But that's sort of a different world and. I've gotten to know both of them and, and sort of bridge both, and that's fun, too. Um, at this point, I'm 68 years old, and I've got nothing to prove to anybody. And what I do, I do because I enjoy doing it. That That's amazing. And But it's... It, I'm, it's a little bit freeing to to be able to, to do that. Now, earlier you, you said, you mentioned to me that there was, you know, uh, the, the old Gary Kahn from, you know, comics that you wrote forever ago and then the, the Gary Kahn of now. Um, By the way, it's Kahn. Oh, I'm, oh. I'm very sorry. That's uh, okay. Um. The, you know, the the old Gary Cohen and the, the Gary Cohen now, and what's the difference between the two? Like, uh, I'll, I'll, the, give you, I'll give you the old Gary Cohen. I'll give you the yes. old Gary Cohen. In, in. I don't know if you saw it, <clears throat> but a while ago it showed up on Facebook and then online on YouTube. There was a video of DC comics having a party in 1984. And a guy who's, Acting the role of Jack Ryder is going to this party and then interviewing people. And they're all telling him about the great projects they're working on. <clears throat> and, of course, it was staged. It was a completely staged party. And I didn't remember this at all. I mean, I didn't remember being there. I didn't remember anything about it. And I still don't remember it except that... Um, <clears throat> Watching the video a few times triggered some false memories, I guess. But there we all were. And there's Marv Wolfman and Len and and Paul Kupperberg. And and I, I kind of cried a little bit watching it because it was, you know, there's Joe Orlando and, and Dick Giordano, quite a bit younger than I am now. And and so many of them who are gone. And, and um, But anyway, there I was too. And I think I was like fresh out of my marriage. I was freshly divorced. Um, and I had what, what my, my physical therapist, I, my, 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 my um, physician's assistant, who's my, my primary physician now, pointed out to me a couple of years ago when I went through another breakup and I came in to see her and she said, oh, you got your, you got your breakup bod. And I had my breakup bod, and my breakup bod at 32 or 33 was quite a bit better than my breakup bod is at 66. <laughs> um, so I was lean, and I was ripped, and I, I still had hair as all dark, and I'm looking, I said, that guy's pretty cute. He's a good-looking guy. And they had this model <laughs> who, was, who, was, who greets Jack Ryder when he comes into the D.C. offices, statuesque brunette, probably about 5'10", about 5'8", and she's dressed as Wonder Woman. And <clears throat> so she brings him into the party, and everybody's having cocktails, and, and there's me, and I do my shtick where I'm full of myself and, and you know, arrogant shit about how great Amethyst is, <laughs> and Blue Devil, and our great plans, and Earth, 
And then for the next 15 minutes of this video, whoever's being interviewed in the party in the background, I'm talking to Wonder Woman. And <laughs> you can see that I'm selling, and not only am I selling, but she's buying. It's one of these really animated, give and take, and, and you know, we're leaning into each other and back and forth and back and forth. That's who I was then. Um, so you, as, had, you as, had game. You had some serious game back then. <laughs> um, so more than that, though, I had this this sense of myself as invincible. Um, at one point, Dan and I were having a conversation with a couple of vice presidents from Kenner Toys, and one of them said, um, as you know, that toy line never happened, but it seemed like it was going to. And he says, so who's the best writer in comics? And without missing a beat, I said, we are. A week later, the first Alan Moore Swamp Thing came out, and I realized immediately how wrong I was about that. <laughs> But, but that's, that's who I was. And, <clears throat> and it took all the, all the knocks and all the ups and downs and all the, all the 30 some odd years of life that I've been telling you about in this con conversation to turn me into who I am now. And there are glimmers of that guy and there, there are things about that guy that I'm happy are still part of me. But, you know, I look at him, I looked at him on this video and I said, what a, what a tool. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I mean, that guy made you who you are today. So, um, um he, he was a step on the, on, he was a stage in the path, you know, he was a stage in the journey. So as, as a writer now, um, you think all of that experience kind of made you into a stronger writer? Um, maybe. Sometimes, sometimes the magic works. Um, I just printed a small collection of short stories, and they're not in any way fantasy or speculative or anything. They are loosely semi-autobiographical. Um, I had three of them. One I wrote when I was 38 about a guy a lot like me and experiences similar to experiences I had had when I was 18. And then in my 40s, two more stories came out about a guy in his early 20s who's riding motorcycles and working on rooftops. And again, both of them are pretty, maybe 80% true. And he's something like me. And together they came to about 80 pages. And I said, yeah, I've got these stories. I might as well do something with them. And I started to talk to a friend of mine about packaging them. And then I, heard a com I had a conversation with a stranger who told me a story. A very sad story about him being an asshole. And uh, a guy with a beautiful wife and how, how that had not worked out well for him. And in the course of the story, I said, you know, you've got to be careful what you tell, tell writers because I might do something with this. Not to be your story, but I might do something with this. And, and I did. Um, last September, as I was having my friend prepare this little book, these people who were kind of loosely based on the story I'd heard and one loosely based on me now, all started talking. And so I started to write. And 45, 46 pages later, um, like 
15,000 words later, their story was done. It was over the course of two months. I think it's pretty good. So it ended up going into the the collection. So now the collection's 130 pages long. And I printed 50 copies. Um, it's got a cover that's a kind of a sepia-toned. It used to be a color picture that my first wife took of me, but over time it became sepia-toned. A picture of me sitting on my motorcycle at 28 as the cover. And on the back is a picture of me at 65 sitting on my motorcycle as the back because some things never change. And first story is this guy who's, they're all roughly the same character, who's 19 years old and doesn't know shit about anything. And then the next two stories are about this guy in his early mid-20s. And then there's a story where the focal character, the point of view character is in his 60s. So I've got 50 copies, and it's got, the the printing term is errata. Um, It's got errors, lots of printing errors. But that's okay because there are only 50 of them. And I realized that there are three more stories that need to be written about a guy in his 30s, a guy in his 40s, and a guy in his 50s. All semi-autobiographical. They're probably pretty nearly double the length of the book. And it'll be, ten, it'll be seven decades. So that is, uh, that's, what I'm, <clears throat> that's what I'm writing now. That sounds fantastic. Um, I can't wait to to actually read that thing. So um, when that comes out, uh, you're you're gonna have well, to let us know. Well, give me an address. I'll send you a copy of what it, of the current the current ish um, the current edition. List the three oh, stories sure. that haven't been written yet. So give me give me your Casey, right? Yes, yes. I'll um Which I'll one? shoot it to you over Which the one? Skype, and uh, yeah, okay. <clears throat> that way, that way, you don't have to have a pen and paper out. But oh my gosh, that sounds yeah. fantastic! Send, so, send me all right, yeah, and uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm sending it over now. Okay. I'll and um, sure, but. but yeah, that's that sounds like a really amazing, uh, amazing group of stories, especially you know as it spans the decades and showing the different person that you the different modes of person you are as as you as you age as you grow older and that's something that i mean i i I definitely wasn't who i was i'm definitely not who i was when i was in my 20s i'm in my late 30s now um and uh i'm learning that every day as my knees grow weaker and uh, my Mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) as i have been running furniture up and down the in preparation for the the, the carpet people to come in tomorrow. I'm realizing my knees are shit. Excuse my language, but Oh my God. Um, Something (laughs) that that's happened here um, because of this time. When my last girlfriend moved out, she was with me for five years and she left about two years ago. And it's a big apartment and the front room was her art studio. And joined to the second room by double doors. And I looked at that and I said, what am I going to do with all this room? I, this apartment is twice the size of the apartment I had in, in New York. So what I did with it was I took all the furniture out and I turned another room into a book room, sitting room. And I covered the floors with puzzle mats. It's a 30-foot stretch, which gives me a short fencing strip. 
I put my heavy bag in one corner. And <clears throat> this apartment has been evolving into basically a home fitness space. <laughs> and and I hadn't really been using it all that much until <clears throat> now. And since I've started being mostly shut in, um, I've probably been doing more push-ups than I've done since my 20s, even though I've done I've done a whole bunch of things. I was martial arts, I did yoga, but, but I'm doing 200, 250 push-ups a day. And, oh, wow. And um, I've got my old bicycle that I had, that I bought in 1971 as my college bike, and I've been riding around the neighborhood. And what I'm discovering is that bodies have tremendous capacity for renewal. And they've got tremendous capacity for rehabilitation. You just have to keep moving. And if you start to move, and if you start to do it regularly and with intent, wherever you think you are in terms of telling yourself, well, I'm just getting old, you're not. You can fix it. You, you just have to. Yeah, yeah. I, I see I have two small kids, so my goal is to get back to where I was so I can, you know, actually be active with them and do stuff. So we, yeah. we've been doing hikes lately. We have a, we live out in the middle of nowhere. So there are a bunch of trails out in the woods behind our house. And we've uh, been kind of, well, it's been really nice down here past few, uh, past mm -hmm. few weeks. So um, because we can't go anywhere else, we can't go into the city and be around people. We're uh, walking out in the woods and being, you know, being around the, around the Creek and around, uh, uh, trees and you know <laughs> have to watch out for ticks but other than that it's been fine but yeah. uh yeah, yeah this gary is, this is a big pause and we're all we're all those of us who are capable of reassessment i think are doing that oh yeah uh, yeah it is there are a lot of people who aren't capable of reassessment that's a problem yeah and it's <sighs> Being where you're at, I mean, you're you're in Richmond, Virginia. You're right around some of the most prominent voices and, uh, uh, you know, huge politicians in our country. How have people there been handling all of this stuff? Richmond's a cool little town because it's dominated by Virginia Commonwealth University. So it's a it's a college town, and it's got a zillion artists and creatives, and it's got the progressive mentality. It's also primarily an Af African-American town. It's 55% really? African-American. Yeah. And the dynamic of that, um, you know, you see, you see a lot of the injustice that's all, that's, that defines this country um, in microcosm in the city, but it's, <clears throat> but it's a city that's at least trying. Um, so Richmond is, uh, very different from, let's say, um, Western Virginia. And because it's state capital, we've had our, our <clears throat> demonstrations with people in camouflage with guns. Um, what they actually want, I can't figure out, but. They, they want to be Braveheart, and they don't have the mental capacity or the wherewithal to actually do anything. <sighs> um, yeah, you know, I, I, I could 
part part of the job of writers to try to figure out what people are are, are about, and also to try to uh, express them without without judgment, and and try to uh, sometimes embody them as a storyteller without without <clears throat> judging them, but letting them be what they are, and that means you've got to be able to understand what they are, and and without judging it. Um, same thing with history. As a historian, um, far too many, far too many people look at history and they say, "Well, what are the lessons, and and what can I, how can I use this to make a point?" And that's not how you do history if you're an academic. What you do is you just have to figure out what happened and why it happened. And if you make any judgments at all, that's the very, very last step, and you do it very cautiously and tentatively. And as a writer, um, you know, as a as a citizen, I have my own feelings and my own opinions, and they're very strong. But as a writer, I don't want to put, I don't want to write polemics. I don't want to write, um, I don't want to write propaganda. So if I'm creating yeah. a character, I want that character to be true. And if that character is villainous, um, it's not because I say this is a villain. It's because the character in 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 the way that character is true to themselves um, and believable as a real person um, is in fact villainous, but not in his own mind. I mean, you know, um, one of the one of the problems I have with comics is that so many of the comics villains self-identify as villains. Yeah, no, no. it is. The worst it's people silly. in the world do not tell themselves, "I'm one of the worst people in the world." So anyway, like I said. Those those guys show up with guns sometimes, and and they yell a lot, and I steer clear of them, and then they go away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, interesting times we live in. Interesting times indeed. And uh, man, I could, I could go on and on about that because those people are my in laws. So, <laughs> um, living in the deep South, uh, those people are your neighbors and it's, um, it can be unsettling and especially knowing like, Oh, you, uh, I see some people who are of that ilk on a daily basis. And they're the type of people that would stop everything that they're doing. If, you know, if you're broke down on the side of the road, they would be the the guy that would come out and, you know, hand you a wrench and, and help you out. But at the same time, I don't know where their head's at in regards to these issues. And it's really unsettling to me. Um, yeah, but because you know that there are there are other circumstances where they would hit you over the head with a rock as soon as look at you. Exactly. Exactly. And that's. Um, that, that's disconcerting because you understand that they're capable of selfless acts of great generosity. And then, as I said, they're capable of hitting you over the head with, with a rock without blinking an eye about it. So r real quick, um, has it been a culture shock for you being in Virginia, like uh, moving, coming from Michigan and then to New York and then to Ohio uh, and then I guess back to New York, has it been a little bit of a culture shock being in Virginia? No, because no, I'm, Richmond is 
what, what, yeah, you're what kind I of an really alumnus. used to. Well, yes, and also I was used to East Lansing and Ann Arbor, and and in a way, Richmond is is one of those. It's a it's a it's a college town, and college towns are real different. So, so no, you know, it's got everything that. Um, at least pre-pandemic, it had everything that I loved about New York. It's got terrific restaurants. It's got an incredible art scene because it's such an easy city to live in that many, many of the people who come out of ECU art school just never leave. So it's got galleries and it's got studios and it's got this ferment of creativity and it's got music and it's got some really nice museums and it's it's got... I found my motorcycle shop. I found my fencing school. I found nice. the communities that I wanted to be part of. So, so it was actually a sigh of relief because suddenly I had a big space where I had tiny cramped space. I'm in a quiet neighborhood where I was in a place that was in the heart of Queens, and I love Queens. Queens is there's a reason why why that part of New York has been hit so badly with the pandemic, but Queens is a 10 by 10 to 100 square mile piece of land with 3 million people in it from oh, yeah. everywhere. It's the single most ethnically diverse 100 square miles on the planet. And it's bordered at the south by Kennedy Airport and at the north by LaGuardia Airport, which is, you see the problem, of course, because anything that's going to come into this country, good or bad, is going to come through that part of New York City. Oh yeah, including a pan, including a pandemic that that's mismanaged. So, <clears throat> so I love the the ferment of Queens. The high school I taught in had a hundred a thousand students, forty three different nationalities. Oh wow! And it was it was so much the UN that the students did not mingle by ethnicity or race or religion. They mingled by affinity. So the jocks were 47 different nationalities of jock. And they were, they were the community of jocks. And the, the computer nerds were 43 different nationalities of computer nerd and the, and the goths and, and so on. They weren't, they weren't differentiated by, by their background. They were differentiated by what they liked. Did that give you a little bit of hope for the for the future? Seeing that, well, yes and no. You know, uh, <clears throat> it, I never got used to the idea that that people from every every nationality, people sixteen year old people, and every race, including I mean, we had Tibetans. You know, we had we had Africans, <laughs> we had East Eastern Eastern Europeans. Forty five percent of our students were Latino, but they were from all over. Latin America of uh, 20% were, were African American, but except for the nerds who did not use this language, um, they all, they all called each other by the N word instead of guy. And in some, in one way that was a, a great democratization, I guess, but I never ever really, really could quite get used to it. Um, As a guy from the South, I'm going to stay away from this, <laughs> this part. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was in most ways, I loved that part of the world and I loved its energy, but 
God, it was filthy all the time. My apartment, if I left the windows open, my apartment was constantly filthy. Um, <clears throat> there was noise all the time. Getting anywhere was an epic journey. My my commute to school was, I think, eight or nine miles. And on a really, really good day, it would take me 45 minutes. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, I can't, and I can't I, imagine. And I, um, just being around that many people uh, – at all kind of freaks me out um, just because, I mean, like I said uh, earlier, my, my closest neighbor lives um, a, about 400 yards away, 500 yards away. Um, so like, I, you know, we that, don't, that freaks me yeah. out. That freaks <laughs> me out. But because, you know, in space, no one can hear you scream. Oh yeah. In yeah. most of the, in, city, most, <laughs> most of the time, um, if you're yelling, help, 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 there are people who are here, and, and there's usually people who show up um, in in the middle of nowhere. Um, you'll help, 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 and the crickets respond. Well, and that, that's one thing that kind of – I have a, a nuanced view on the whole the, – the gun debate just solely based on the fact that if I have to call the sheriff, um, it'll take him a good 30 minutes to get out here by the time he gets out here whatever it was going to happen has happened. So, um, but also I'll, I don't think that anyone in the world should be able to get whatever they want. I think there should be, uh, you're, you should be able, you should have to sign up for these things. Anyway. Yeah. We, we live out in the middle of nowhere. Deer come up in our yard. Um, we had, we had a, a group of about five deer running around our backyard the other day, like dogs. They were just happy little deer running around. It was the craziest thing. So um, my wife uh, took a, a big old thing of apples out and started throwing them out in the yard. And then uh, the next morning when I was drinking my coffee, I saw a deer out in the yard uh, picking up an apple. So um, that's always kind of cool. That's good. As far as guns go, um, I've never owned one. I've never been in a situation where my having a gun would have made the situation better. I have no problem with guns. What I have problem with is fetishizing them. Yes, and and making it into a fear totem. That that's a term I heard the other day that it hits a nail on the head. Like just because you you're scared of something. Uh, of you know anything really, and, and having that, it's not going to solve the problem. Um, mm-hmm. But if if you if you know how to use it, if you're competent with it, um, and know when not to use it, that is uh, you know that that's a, a different situation altogether. But just having it's not going to make you any more safe. You know, I have uh, three or four hammers because over the years I've build things and I I like knowing that if I need to build something like I just I built a frame that I yesterday I built a frame that I can strap onto my heavy bag and it holds a fencing foil at arm's length and suddenly I've got Gaston who I can fence with <laughs> um, and and I like knowing that if I need to build something I've got a hammer but I'm not going to make a I'm not going to venerate my hammers, you know, I'm not going to, I'm exactly. not going to, and some of them are very nice hammers, but I'm not going to uh, build my life around the idea that I own hammers. When I need a exactly. hammer, I know how to get a hammer. It's not an extension of your personality, which I think some people 
the, the most egregious of them do, and it's or oh my god, those people are awful. <laughs> yeah, or or something that I used to define who I am, which is exactly. even worse than an extension of personality. Um, <clears throat> it's a it's a for for purchase personality, or an it's extension of your manhood. Which is yeah, it's one of the reasons why, although I've ridden motorcycles for 45 years, I've never owned a Harley. Really? Because I was going to ask what you rode. I'll try that, that's, <laughs> that's one thing that um, my, my, my dad used to ride a, a Harley Sportster. And um, it some of those guys, it becomes definitely becomes who they are. I'm a Harley rider. And it, they they think that there's some type of badassness attached to it when uh no your 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 name is steve and you're an accountant during the week on the weekends you get on your harley but <laughs> monday through friday you're an accountant you're not a harley rider <laughs> yep but uh gary it, it's been amazing talking to you man i i, I feel like i could pull like chew your ear off just talking 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 all night um, so I, I think for, for your sake, I need to end this. <laughs> Other, otherwise you're going to be like, what the me. hell was that? <laughs> Good. Um, I'll be interested to see what 45 minutes you pull out of this. Cause we've been at this for about two hours. Oh man. I, I've, I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much for, for chatting with us. And, um, I can't wait to read, uh, read your collection of stories because it, it, it sounds fantastic. Um, you, you guys, Gary Cohen, uh, Cohen is, uh, an amazing writer. Check out his stuff. He, he created Jim world. He created amethyst. He created blue devil, uh, go out there, find his works. Uh, and, um, hopefully soon we'll be seeing you at a con because, uh, I please, please say are, that he co-created these things. Yes, uh, yes, I'm, I'm I'm very sorry. Co-created with Dan Mishkin, uh, both Jim World, Amethyst, and, and, Cologne, uh, and, and Paris Collins. Yes, and uh, man, Paris Paris is an amazing uh, artist as well. Oh my gosh! Let me say something about that. There are writers, um, a couple of them I know and like, who claim to be the sole creators of comic books, of of and. If you're a writer, you cannot be the sole creator of, of a comic. Um, whoever the first artist was, whoever first visualized that comic is your co-creator because you could not have done it without them. And so anytime I do anything, the artist I generate the thing with, uh, they are they are my complete partner and and at least my equal in in the origins of whatever we've produced. Okay, that's that. <laughs> All right. Uh, be well, okay. uh, Mr. Cohen. You too. Take care, right. Thank you. And we're back. And we're back. So, you know what's really hilarious about this whole thing? Huh. Is I remember when I edited this together, I was like, oh, hey, we have two parts because. There's a break in the middle because the mixer went out. And yeah, and you kept just, saying it was like a perfect break too, right? Yeah. Well, that well, it was, it's a perfect break basically because they basically started over, but at, but did a whole new interview with new questions and new topics. So it's like, 
literally two episodes. So it worked out perfectly. One's about 35 minutes. One's an hour and 20. So Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> and I didn't and well to follow my thought there is I, I talked about it when I first edited, but that was like three weeks ago. And then today, the day the, the, the first one and the second one released now that we've done this one. Yeah. Casey's like, hey, I, I'm pretty sure I talked to Gary about more stuff on that. Can't, it's only like 35 <laughs> minutes. Where's the rest of the interview? No, no, it's all there. It's all there. <laughs> that's what I said. And then I looked like, oh, wait, no, it's not. No, it's not. <laughs> No, there's like another, you know, 90 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Hour 20. So, <laughs> Casey, oh. thanks for calling me out and making us fix it. And, and Gary, thank you so much for talking with Casey and coming on. And, and it was a blast. There you guys go. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as we did putting it together and getting it out there. It might have took us a little extra step to get it to you, but you got it. You got and it. And you can tell that Casey had a lot of fun. Cone got, had a lot of fun. Johnny had a lot of fun. And, you know, I had a lot of fun. And if you enjoyed yourself, why don't you go down to spoilerverse.com. And if you Come enjoy- on down to spoilerverse.com. Yeah, that was weird, right? <laughs> Come on down, guys. <laughs> if you liked what you heard, go visit spoilerverse.com and give us, you know, peruse our wares. Check out what we got. There's a lot of other podcasts on there, all with a lot of great content. Everything is free when it comes to getting entertained. And then what else can they do there, Johnny? They can read articles, reviews, previews, all that kind of fun stuff. They can click on the store option and go to our store and pick up any one of our cool t-shirts or hoodies yeah. or stickers or not hats yet, but working on that and a bunch of other stuff that helps support the show. Give us a few bucks, keep our lights on, help pay the bills here and, you know, do all that fun stuff. You can also go watch us on YouTube and see our pretty, pretty faces there. There you go. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed it, but don't forget, in an oceans of podcasts. We are Cthulhu, and if Cthulhu compels you to do, we'll open the night and read more. Books.